Well, I hope you've been learning lots. Here's some of the things I've learned since last night's session, the last 24 hours. I've learned that I should stop making fun of philosophers. Despite their very big brains, it turns out that philosophers, who knew, are people too. And they have feelings. So I'm just going to go back to my old trick, that is you make fun of the engineers, um, because they're tough and they can handle it apparently. Um, oh, have I insulted the philosophers again? I was trying to insult the engineers. Um, I've also apparently insulted the whole sheep farming and shepherding industry, and apparently I'm never going to be allowed to eat lamb again. Uh, and I've also learned I should stop making fun of anyone not knowing what a symphony is, because apparently symphonies don't have overtures, so look who's really a cultural philistine. It's me. So I've learned lots. I hope you've learned before of more use than that. Anyway, God speaks. That is the wonderful, life-giving truth we looked at yesterday. The one true living God has spoken through the prophets of the Old Testament. He's revealed himself to be the one who's full of authority, righteousness, and love. But then he's spoken uniquely and climactically in his son, Jesus, God the Word, come amongst us in human flesh. But none of us were around when Jesus of Nazareth was preaching and teaching in Palestine. 2,000 years ago. None of us saw his death on the cross and no one here, I'm guessing, was a witness to his resurrection. So, given that that's the case, how do you know about Jesus? None of us have direct physical access to Jesus, the Word become flesh. We might have heard first about Jesus by word of mouth from somebody else. But at some point along the line, they, like you, would have had that verbal information about Jesus confirmed and enriched by what we have recorded for us in our Bibles. We rely on the words that have been written down in the Christian Bible, the Christian scriptures or writings as they are called. And as Christians, we believe that God has spoken not just through his prophets and his son, but also through his scriptures. So the scriptures are so key for our knowledge of what God has said through his prophets and son that we're going to spend tonight and tomorrow night exploring how God speaks through his scriptures because there is no other way we have access authoritatively to God's truth. So let's get into it. Going right back to Moses and the Israelites gathered at Mount Sinai, There is a tradition established by God himself of his word or his message, his speech, being written down and then read out again. In fact, God himself is the first one to write down his own words for our benefit. There on page 21 from Exodus chapter 32, after God has spoken the Ten Commandments to Moses and all the Israelites, notice what he says. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God on the tablets. God himself engraves 
the ten words onto the stone tablets for the benefit of his people. It's going to be a permanent reminder, literally written in stone, this way his words will last. Moving on from Exodus, uh, moving on to Exodus 34, God tells Moses to write down all the laws that he's given in addition to the Ten Commandments. Have a look at Exodus 34, verse 27 there. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write down these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. We saw yesterday, when God speaks, he establishes a relationship with his people. It's a covenant relationship with obligations and promises on both sides. Moses is to write down all the words of the covenant, all the words of this covenant relationship, and create a covenant document, a written record of the covenant agreement between the living God and his chosen people. It's a bit like a written contract. It stipulates the nature of the relationship between the two parties, putting the verbal agreement into written form which then makes it easier to go back to and be reminded of the details of the covenant that's been established. And that is exactly what happens. If you look at the next passage there from Deuteronomy 31, which Christy just read out for us, you can see how this written covenant document was to be used amongst God's people. Two things, I'm not going to read out the passage again, but two things you'll note from that passage. First of all, the law is written down so that it can be read out. Every seven years, we were told, all the people, but especially the children and the foreigners, are to gather to hear the entirety of the book of the covenant read out. Why? Well, there, the answer is there in verse 12. So they can learn to fear the Lord their God and follow carefully all the covenant stipulations. That is, so they can learn what it is to be in a covenant relationship with the one true living God. It was a way of successive generations hearing the same words of God. Even though they weren't there when they were originally spoken at Mount Sinai, they hear the same words. And every seven years, all of God's people gather and hear all of those words again. So any children that have been born, any foreigners who've joined into God's people, they all hear the same words. They hear the words of God. Second thing then to note in verse 26 is that the book of the law remains as a witness against the Israelites. Moses knows that the Israelites are unlikely to keep God's covenant laws. Their track record, even in Moses' lifetime, was woeful. This written copy of the law will stand as God's witness, like God's witness for the prosecution against them when they wander away from God's ways. There will be no excuse for God's people. They will never be able to say, but Lord, we never knew what you wanted us to do. We never knew what our covenant obligations were. No, because there'll be the book of the law there, the covenant document that outlines exactly what God expected from them and the consequences of breaking the covenant. And so to that end in verse 26, it's no accident that the book of the law is to be placed beside the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark was a box, not a boat, if you're thinking Noah's Ark. It's, the Ark of the Covenant was actually a box that contained the stone tablets, the Ten Commandments, and which was kept 
in the innermost sanctum of the tabernacle and later of the temple in Jerusalem. This innermost sanctum was the symbolic place where the one true living God dwelt among his people. Here, if you like, was the meeting place between the living God and his people. Uh, Tim Ward highlights the significance in this way at the bottom of page 21. He says, Placing the book of the law beside the ark spoke powerfully of the fact that God's words were in some sense the mode in which he had chosen to be present among his people. See, the one true living God was not actually in the innermost sanctum of the tabernacle. He wasn't actually there sitting above the ark. He wasn't and would never be restricted merely just to a single room on this earth. But significantly, he chose to manifest his presence among his people through his words. And as we saw yesterday, God has invested himself in his words. So how you hear and respond to his words is how you hear and respond to him. And God chooses to make himself present among his people by his words and ultimately in the word. Jesus, the word incarnate. But also he makes himself present through his words written down. So we move on from Moses to the prophet Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah, coming many centuries after Moses, gives us another good example of why God wanted his word to be written down. Over the page, on page 22, have a look there at Jeremiah 36, 1-8. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll... And write on it all the words I have spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, and all the other nations from the time I began speaking to you in the reign of Josiah till now. Perhaps when the people of Judah hear about every disaster I plan to inflict on them, they will turn from their wicked ways. Then I will forgive their wickedness and their sin. Presumably, the people had already heard these words from the Lord once before. When the Lord first spoke these words to Jeremiah, presumably, he preached them to the people. But now, Jeremiah is told to go back and write them all down with the intention that the people will hear them again. And presumably, by having them read out aloud again, Hopefully, says God, when the people hear these prophecies again, they will turn. Turn from their wicked ways and come back to me so I can forgive them. Pick it up there from verse 4. So Jeremiah called Baruch, son of Neriah. And while Jeremiah dictated all the words the Lord had spoken to him, Baruch wrote them on the scroll. Then Jeremiah told Baruch, I am restricted. I'm not allowed to go to the Lord's temple. So you go to the house of the Lord on a day of fasting and read to the people 
from the scroll the words of the Lord that you wrote as I dictated. Baruch, son of Neriah, did everything Jeremiah the prophet told him to do. At the Lord's temple, he read the words of the Lord from the scroll. Now, Andrew Sheed has some helpful reflections on what's going on here. Listen to what he says there. Through the act of writing, divine words take up residence on paper and by means of their inscribed presence amongst us can be proclaimed again and again, venturing forth into the world to do their job of tearing down and building up. The voice we hear is not the voice doing the reading. It is the voice of the prophet who first spoke, and it is the voice of God whose words the prophet spoke. So when Christy comes and reads out the scripture for us, it's the words of God's prophet speaking the words of God that we are actually hearing. Having his word written down and then read out was a way of God making sure his word could sound forth again and again. But Andrew Sheed notes another benefit as well. He says, written words enable the word to be heard into the future and more than this, enable the word to shine more brightly than it ever did by preserving it until it can be illuminated by its eventual fulfillment. So by preserving God's word in written form, when God's word comes true, as it inevitably does, we are then able to give God glory because and know that he really is God because we knew, know now that he does what he promised. We've seen it fulfilled. Jeremiah might have heard it from the Lord and written down the prophecy and the people heard it, but we get to hear it and know that it was fulfilled. So his word shines even more brightly. So this dynamic of God's word of promise written down so that it then might be illuminated by its fulfillment, that is what binds the entirety of the Christian scriptures together. Uh, you can see a little diagram there at the bottom of page 22. The books of the Old Testament, like the ones we've mentioned tonight, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, they are bound together, not just as part of an ongoing process of revelation between God and his people, they are bound together by the fact that they all point forward in different ways, but they all point forward to the coming of God's Christ. Now, Christ or Messiah just means anointed one, someone who has been anointed for a particular task within God's plans and purposes. So in the Old Testament, there were lots of Christs. You might never, never thought of it like this, but Christ just means anointed ones. And in the Old Testament, priests were anointed, they were Christs. Kings were anointed with oil when they took office, but they were little c, little c, Christs. But what binds the books of the Old Testament together is that they all point forward to the day when God's capital C, Christ, would come. The Christ whom God would send, who would fulfill all of God's promises to his people. And then when Jesus of Nazareth arrives on the scene, he says, yep, That'd be me that you've been waiting for. You can see there how Jesus put it to the religious leaders of his day. 
who refused to accept that he was the Christ, what he says in John 5, 39 40. He said to them, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus is the Christ, capital C, the Messiah, the anointed one to whom the whole of the Old Testament scriptures was pointing. So that's the Old Testament, but how do we get our information about Jesus since he didn't write anything down himself and he's no longer walking around amongst us? Well, over the page on page 23, I've set out how it works. Jesus' intention was that we would have access to what he did and said. Jesus wanted you to know what he did and said. How was he going to make that happen? He did it through his authorized, authoritative, apostolic eyewitnesses. The New Testament Gospels record that Jesus picked 12 apostles, and apostles just means sent ones, 12 he was going to send out who would be his authorized and authoritative eyewitnesses. You can see what Jesus says to them after his resurrection from the dead there in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Speaking to them, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. Notice they're not just going to be Jesus' witnesses in their local area. They are going to be his authoritative eyewitnesses in Australia. They are going to be his authoritative witnesses in Greenland. They are going to be his authoritative eyewitnesses in France and on Mars. Seriously, like for the whole of the universe, they are to be his authoritative eyewitnesses. They are irreplaceable. The apostles are absolutely essential. And second point, they were equipped for this task of bearing eyewitness testimony by the Holy Spirit. They didn't just speak with their own insight or in their own strength. God himself was going to equip them all the task through the Holy Spirit. Look at how Jesus explains it to them in John 14, 24 to 26. He says, The word that you hear, that is the word that they have heard from him, the word that you hear is not mine, but is from the Father who sent me. I have said these things to you while I am still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. The Spirit at work within them will remind them of everything Jesus has said to them. But He will also teach them everything. What does that mean? Teach them everything. I take it that what He means there is, the Spirit will help them understand what Jesus said to them in the light of the Old Testament. They won't just remember what Jesus said, like some sort of spirit-enabled voice recorder. Oh, no, hang on, I remember. He said. No, they will remember it, yes, but they then, they will know what it means. They will understand it. 
because the Spirit will have given them understanding of who Jesus is as the Christ promised through the Old Testament prophets. That Spirit-enabled recall and understanding is what qualifies them to be Jesus' authoritative eyewitnesses. Consequently, to respond to the apostles' testimony is actually to respond to Jesus. Uh, Jesus said in John 13, verse 20, Very truly I tell you, anyone who receives one whom I send, if you receive one whom I send, you receive me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. So there's a direct line there, isn't it? Our response to the apostles, Jesus sent ones, is our response to Jesus. And our response to Jesus is our response to God the Father. You cannot reject the apostles' testimony and claim to be listening to the living God. Nor can you reject the apostles' testimony and yet claim, oh no, but I'm, 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 all, I'm all for Jesus, I'm pro-Jesus. You can't do that. Now, as we move towards the writing of the New Testament documents, we note the next point, that this authoritative apostolic testimony might be spoken or written. Listen to how the Apostle Paul talked about his authoritative proclamation of the gospel to the Thessalonian believers. 2 Thessalonians 2, jumping in there at verse 15. So then, Paul says, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by our letter. It makes no difference, see, whether the apostolic testimony comes by word of mouth or by letter. It has the same authoritative status. So it's no surprise, therefore, that the apostles' writings were included by the Christians in Scripture, the set of authoritative writings from God. The Apostle Peter here in 2 Peter 3 mentions Paul's letters, and he regards them as part of the Scriptures. 2 Peter chapter 3, 15, 16. So also, he writes, our beloved brother Paul wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him, speaking of this as he does in all his letters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. So Paul, as an apostle, has his writings, included by Peter, included in the scriptures, the authoritative writings that bear witness to Jesus as the Christ, and so likewise, the writings of Peter or John or Matthew in the New Testament coming from the apostolic hand. But if you have a look at the books that make up your Christian New Testament, you might notice that there's quite a few of them in the New Testament that are not actually written by the apostles. What do you do with Mark? What do you do with Luke, who wrote both Luke and Acts, which is a significant portion of the New Testament? What about the book of James or Hebrews, given that we really don't know at all who wrote Hebrews? What about those New Testament books that are not written by apostles? Why do we include them in the authoritative New Testament scriptures? If you're interested in that question, which is the question of the New Testament, what's called canon, the New Testament canon, there's a whole elective on it 
tomorrow. You can go tomorrow or you can go on Thursday to it and you can get all your questions answered. Kaz, just, she's, she's a gun on this stuff. Uh, and I'm not going to spoil your fun by giving any hints away now. And see, the good news is, by the time we get to question time on Thursday night, you've had all your questions answered because Kaz, you went to Kaz's seminar. So where this gets us, that was clever of me, wasn't it, to organize it that way. Um, so where this gets us is the little diagram at the bottom of page 23. You can see it there, page 23. Jesus, as the word of God, speaks the Father's words. These words are then recalled, understood, and proclaimed by Jesus' authorized, authoritative, apostolic eyewitnesses with the enabling of his spirit within them. And this apostolic testimony is committed to writing in the form of the New Testament scriptures. And there too, we'll actually see tomorrow night, the spirit was active in that writing process. So as a result of all of that, over the page, page 24, you can see the result. The result is a collection of sacred writings or holy scriptures. We have a collection of writings. We have 66 books make up the Christian Bible. 66 books divided into two testaments, 39 books in the Old Testament that point forward to the coming of the capital C Christ, and 27 books in the New Testament identifying Jesus as that promised Christ. Now, it's important to say, because I don't want you to be uninformed about the reality of the Christian Bible, it's important for me to tell you, if you don't know this, that we do not have any of the original manuscripts of any of the books in the Bible. That might be a surprise to you. We don't have any of the original manuscripts. But in the realm of ancient historical documents, which is what we're talking about when we're talking about the Bible, right? These are old documents. That is not actually unusual. We don't have any original manuscripts for any of Plato's works, for any of Julius Caesar's commentaries on the Gaelic Wars. We don't have any original manuscripts for Homer's Iliad or Odyssey. So this is not an unusual situation. But what we do have in extraordinary abundance are lots and lots and lots of copies of the original. In fact, far more copies and written, copied out at a far closer date to the original than for almost any other comparable ancient text. What this means is that we can have a very high degree of certainty about what was in the original document because there are just so many copies made so quickly after the original was written. We do not claim as Christians to have a pristine, perfect, present-day text. But we do have a text that we can be confident in, that it delivers us with a very high degree of certainty what Paul, Mark, and Luke originally wrote. Okay, so in the last part of this talk, what I want to do now is I want us to look inside our Bibles and think about what sort of Bible has God given us. 
what's it like? So I'm now at part B, the story of God's written word. So when you look in your Bible and you flick through it, I mean, this is why it's hopeless having it on your phone. I mean, I got it on my phone too, but you can't really flick through it, can you? I mean, you scroll through pages. like. But when you get a real Bible. Anyway, when you flick through your Bible, what do you actually see? The first thing we notice when we look through our Bibles is the incredible diversity in the Christian Scriptures. There's a diversity of human authors, scribes and compilers. Some wrote themselves, like Luke, writing Luke's Gospel and the book of Acts. Some wrote via a scribe, like Jeremiah, writing through Baruch, or like Paul, who often had someone else write down his letter. He would dictate, they would write it down. Other times, there have clearly been compilers or editors at work pulling the different material together. Uh, The Psalms is an obvious example. Psalms written by a whole set of different people over a long period of time that are then pulled together, compiled into five books to make up the one Psalter or the one whole collection of Psalms. So there's diversity of authors and compilers. There is also a diversity of time. Uh, These books in the Bible have been written over a very long period of time. The earliest portions probably go back to the time of Moses himself around 1400 BC all the way through to the latest bits of the New Testament, probably written around 90 AD. So that's a basically a 1,500-year time span. That's a massive time span over which these documents were written. There's also a diversity, a range of geographical settings, combined, and then we combine with a time factor, that makes for a whole range of cultural influences. Geographically, the settings range from the ancient kingdom of Babylon in the east, all the way through to Rome in the west and Egypt in the south. But culturally, there are interactions with a host of ancient Near Eastern cultures, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Canaanites, the Philistines, right through to interactions in the New Testament time with the world of Greek philosophy philosophy and the Roman Empire. But most importantly, actually, when it comes to cultural influences, we have to remember that Christianity's roots were in Judaism. It's the Jewish scriptures which forms the Christian Old Testament. Consequently, the New Testament writers were heavily shaped by the Jewish background to the Christian faith. Even if some of the New Testament writers were not themselves Jewish, like Luke, say, they still understood the importance of the Jewish scriptures for Christian belief. We would not understand who Jesus was or the significance of his death and resurrection if it weren't for the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. So to explain Jesus, it was necessary to understand the Jewish background and the Jewish scriptures. And the same is true for us today. If we're going to understand the New Testament writings about Jesus, we need to be soaked in the Old Testament scriptures because that is the cultural and theological background against which you understand who Jesus is. Finally, there's also a huge range of diversity of genres, of literary types in your Bible. You can see some of them listed there on your page. There's history. Now, it's not history as you would write it today, but it was history as it was commonly written and understood at the time of its composition. For example, they were not always so worried about precise dates 
or periods of time or quantities or even necessarily the precise sequence in which events occurred. That wasn't being sloppy. It just wasn't necessarily a feature of historical record writing as it was done at the time. They wrote with the conventions of their day. But there's also narrative. What I mean by narrative are prose accounts that are not necessarily to be understood as literal events that they're describing. You might put, say, parables of Jesus into this sort of category. They're not lit. I mean, he told the story, but the story he tells was not describing an actual literal event. They're a narrative that communicates truth. Some Christians would put the early chapters of Genesis, maybe Genesis 1, 2, and 3, into that category, a God-given narrative that doesn't propose to tell you exactly how God created the world in a, with a blow-by-blow description, but it tells us true and important things about God and his creation of the world. Now, other Christians would disagree and would argue those chapters should be placed in the history category rather than the narrative category. I guess you'll fight with me on Thursday night about that. Another genre, law. There's lots of law in the Old Testament, particularly in the first five books, as part of God's covenant that he established with the Israelites at Mount Sinai. But there's also laws and commands in the New Testament. Songs. The book of Psalms is a collection of 150 songs. You can find songs at various places, though, as well, between the Old Testament and the New, including the Song of Songs, which means the song that tops all other songs, the best song that there is, which is rated H for hot. Because if you can read it without getting a bit hot under the collar, then I don't think you were paying attention. There's poetry. Uh, The songs in the Bible are just one type of poetry, but a lot of prophecy was given in the Old Testament in poetic form. The book of Job in the Old Testament is an epic poem. I don't mean it was epic. I mean it it is, in sort of literary terms, an epic poem exploring why righteous people suffer if God is sovereign and good. There's apocalyptic writings in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, don't think dystopian sort of end of the world type teen fiction, right? Apocalyptic writings in the Bible is a particularly a particular literary type, and I'll say this slowly so you can get it, that uses cosmic cosmic imagery and symbolism to invest real world events with their true theological importance. I'll say that again. Um, What apocalyptic writing does in the Bible is that it uses cosmic imagery and symbolism to invest real world events with their true theological importance. So when you read apocalyptic writings in the scriptures, you meet towering mountains, you meet beasts with horns, dragons, stars being thrown to earth. This is not meant to be describing literal events. This is a wild apocalyptic ride, right? It is cosmic imagery that is investing real events with their true theological 
significant. But that's not all. As we've mentioned before in the New Testament, you have a whole lot of letters, some written to individuals like Titus and Philemon, some written to specific churches like Romans or 1 and 2 Corinthians, some written as general letters to be circulated around an area, 1 and 2 Peter, James, maybe Hebrews. And finally, there's wisdom sayings, collections of proverbs, aphorisms, wise sayings. There's so much diversity in this one book. Doesn't it make you want to get it out and read it? Just how rich it is? It's so interesting. God's scriptures are so interesting. He communicates his word to us in so many different ways, so many different literary forms. It's just a delight to read. So much diversity in this one book. But in the midst of all this diversity, God's scriptures have a profound unity that binds them together. Now, if you look on the facing page of your book, your outline there, page 25, we can start to trace out this unity by noticing that across all these different authors and times and places and genres, there is one unifying story, a unifying history of salvation as God works in the world to save a people for himself. We can trace out this one unifying story in two ways. That's the two sort of horizontal pictures you've got there. The first, we can trace out this unifying story in terms of a timeline with dates and names and events which is that top up and, down, up and down line there on your outline. But we can also tell the story in terms of an overarching narrative, the key points which give shape to the whole series of events as God's salvation history. That's what that bottom diagram is attempting to do. So what I'm going to do now, in the next 10 minutes, I'm going to tell you the whole story of the Bible in 10 minutes. Maybe 11 and a half. Depends how fast I speak. But if you want to time me, you can. But it's more important to pay attention. I'm just going to talk through the story. I'm going to incorporate both diagrams as we go. That I'm only going to put the top one on the screen. So you just need to listen and pay attention. You'll, you'll see how they connect up. All right. Here we go. The story of the Bible starts with creation. As we saw yesterday, along the way after creation, as an act of undeserved kindness, an act of grace, God chooses Abraham and establishes a covenant with him. That was probably about 2,000 years BC. He promises to Abram to make him the father of a great nation. And through him and his descendants to bless the whole world. Well, because God's word is true, that's what happened. Abram's grandson, Jacob, had 12 sons. They drove a big bus. Okay, that bit's not in the Bible. I added that in. All right. Jacob had 12 sons, and their descendants, his descendants, became the 12 tribes 
of the nation of Israel. However, instead of being free and inheriting the land that God had promised to Abram, the 12 tribes of Israel end up in slavery in Egypt for about 400 years. They cry out to the Lord to rescue them and fulfill his promise. And then the Lord God remembers his covenant with Abram, his promise that his descendants would inherit the land of Canaan. He hears their cry to rescue them from their slavery in Egypt. And because he is a God full of love and faithfulness to his promise, he rescues them out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses in about 1450 BC. This rescue out of Egypt, known as the Exodus, it is the great deliverance moment throughout the whole of the Old Testament. Throughout the whole of the rest of the Old Testament, God's people point back to this moment, this Exodus, as the time when God rescued his people. And they point back to that and say, if God rescued us then, then he can rescue us now. It was the great deliverance moment. So having brought his people out of Egypt, God brings them to himself at Mount Sinai, and he establishes a renewed covenant with them, with the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Law, which we looked at both yesterday and today. And then he takes them to the promised land of Canaan. Once they're in the land, several hundred years pass, and God's people, the Israelites, well, they want to be like every other nation around them. That's not a good thing whenever God's people just want to be like everybody else. In particular, they want a king like everyone else. Well, God relents and he grants them a king. That first king, Saul, wasn't that great. But his son, David, was a king after God's own heart. David reigned about 1000 BC. It was to David that God made another covenant, a promise that one of David's descendants would sit on his throne forever. David's descendant would have an eternal kingship. David's immediate descendant, his son Solomon, turned out not to be the promised descendant who would rule forever. After Solomon, in fact, the kingdom, the Israelite kingdom, split up never again to be rejoined. The kingdom split into the northern kingdom, confusingly called Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. Each had their own king. However, the problem throughout this whole story is that God's people kept refusing to keep the covenant that God had graciously established with them. Throughout the whole history, from Moses on, God had sent prophets to call his wayward people back to himself. Sometimes they listened, but most of the time they did not. Eventually, God said, enough. It was time for the covenant provisions for disobedience to kick in. So for their constant disobedience, 
and refusal to come back to God, the northern kingdom of Israel was wiped out under God's hand by the Assyrians, one of the world powers of the time, in 722 BC. The northern kingdom of Israel was no more. But in God's mercy, the southern kingdom of Judah continued on. Yet they too kept wandering into idolatry and rejection of God's way of living as his people, as had been set down in the covenant document. So as both punishment and discipline under God's hand, the southern kingdom was taken over by another of the world's superpowers at the time, the Babylonians, and were carted off to exile in Babylon. This happens around 590 BC. Eventually, as an act of mercy and grace, God brings Judah back from exile. They're finally all in the comes in the, they come back in dribs and drabs, but they're finally all back in the land by about 432 BC. But things are never quite what they'd all hoped it would be. Things never quite reach the promised height that God had foretold through his prophets. And in the midst of this time, around the exile, God makes another promise to his people. He promises that one day, not yet, but one day, he will establish a new covenant with his people. And unlike the first covenant, going back to Moses, which they continually break and which ultimately has landed them in exile, this new covenant, when he finally establishes it with his people, they will not break it. It will be written, not on blocks of stone, it will be written on their hearts. And they will keep it. That's a wonderful promise, but it's not the present experience of the Israelites who returned from exile. Well, eventually, some 400 years later, a baby is born in Bethlehem. His name is Jesus. Some very unusual events surround his birth. Some even more unusual things were prophesied about him. That he was the promised descendant from David. That he was the capital C Christ who would usher in all of God's promises. And yet, he met a grisly, tortured end. He was crucified by the Romans who were the resident superpower occupying the promised land at the time. But on the night before he died, Jesus said a very strange thing. As he passed around a cup of wine that he and his disciples were sharing as they celebrated the Jewish Passover, Jesus said, This is my blood of the new covenant that is poured out for you. It was Jesus' way of saying, That promised new covenant for which we have been waiting for hundreds of years, it is happening now through me, through my blood, through my imminent death, and I'm doing it for you. And although they killed him, three days later his tomb was empty and he was seen alive, alive, not just by a few people, But even 500 people at once saw him and touched him. 
his resurrection was vindication of his identity. He really was the promised Christ at the center of God's plan. But it was also the beginning of the new creation. Jesus' resurrection from that tomb was a sneak peek that God gave us of the great future that he had planned to renew all of creation. That first sneak peek given to us that God's intention is to make all things new, to get rid of all the sin that corrupts and destroys, and to restore his original good purposes for his creation. And the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is just the first realized flesh and blood moment in God's new creation project. Well, where are you in this story? We are here. We are here between Jesus' resurrection and his return when Jesus' new creation project is complete. But get this, we are not just here chronologically. If you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then his new creation project has already begun now in you. You have been born again through faith in Jesus as one of God's children in whom the Spirit of Jesus lives. And his promise is that when Jesus returns to usher in that new creation, he will raise you from the dead like he was raised from the dead in fulfillment of all the good and loving plans and purposes of God. Well, there in a bit over 10 minutes is my summary of the Bible story. You can see it forms one coherent story, one history of salvation from creation through to new creation. And key to how it moves along, key how key to how God moves it along from one end to the other, as I tried to bring out, is via a series of covenants. These covenants don't all replace one another. More the covenants with David, Moses and David are added on to the covenant with Abram. And similarly, the new covenant that is brought in through Jesus' death and resurrection doesn't just replace the old covenant, it, it fulfills the old covenant with Jesus as the one true Israelite who fulfilled all the old covenant stipulations and kept them without fail. Well, what I hope is clear, having been through that story, if you turn over the page to page 26, is that the story really does have one climax. Jesus, who is the promised capital C Christ from God. Paul puts it there in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, For in Jesus Christ, every one of God's promises is a yes. Jesus is at the center of God's promises and plans. Unity to the whole of the scriptures in all of its diversity is found in Jesus. He is the one climax, the one to whom it all points and in whom it all finds its fulfillment. Now there's one final consequence of the unity of the scriptures that's important when you read it. Since the Scriptures tells this one united story, what's important to realize is that 
we know more about God as you go further on in the story. God's revelation of himself through the storyline of the Bible is progressive. So we know more about God where we are on the other side of Jesus. We know more about the one true living God than Moses who was in the very presence of the living God. We know more about the one true God because we stand on the other side of Jesus than David or Abraham. But a consequence of that progressive revelation is that we always have to be careful when we read the earlier parts of the Scripture, particularly the Old Testament. Because it's a progressive story, you can't just take anything that's said in the Old Testament and claim that it applies directly and simply to us today. We are in a different part of salvation history. We're standing on the other side of Jesus, who is the yes to all of God's prior promises. So we have to read the Old Testament in particular through the lens of what Jesus has accomplished as the Christ at the center of God's plans. That requires some care. It takes a bit of Bible knowledge to know how some material in the Old Testament, say from the law or the historical narratives, how that speaks as God's word to us today through Christ. There's no shortcut you can take there. You just need to get familiar with reading your Bible, which has Jesus at the center of it. Well, let's wrap up for today. We've seen that God caused the scripture to be written so that his word could be preserved for his people so they might hear it again when it is read and that they might keep on responding to him rightly as members of his covenant people. So the two questions I'm leaving you with, first of all, will you listen to the one true living God as he speaks through his book, the Christian scriptures? Will you treasure what is written here? as the very words of God. Will you listen to this as God's powerful, living, and active word that will bring life to your soul? But we've also seen here that there is a unity to all the diversity within the Scriptures, and that unity finds its focus in Christ. So the second question, will you come to the Scriptures, both old and new, to know Jesus? If you want to know and understand the Lord Jesus Christ, friend, you have nowhere else to go. Will you come to the Scriptures to meet Jesus? And in light of the Uncover Project we talked about last night, will you bring the Scriptures to others so that they might meet the living Jesus too? Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you've caused to be written for us in Scripture. We thank and praise that it shines light into our darkness and promises life through faith in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to listen attentively to your word in the Scriptures. Give us humility as we come before it. And we pray, Lord, please, as we read it, that you would open the, our minds and our hearts by your Spirit so that we might know Jesus.
so that we might have life in his name. Amen.